And if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, that is page 2. As we begin our march through Genesis. Now you'll see in the bulletin that I had the very ambitious goal of covering the entirety of chapter 2 today. That's not going to happen. Uh, we, you'll also see on your outline I have three points. I'm hoping to get through one of them today. Because this is a very rich passage. There is a lot here. So I'm very excited for us to be able to go through it and to see what is here for us today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. And I am going to go to about verse 9. We'll see if we get that far today. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Please pay attention because this is God's word for you today. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this word that you have given to us here in Genesis chapter 2. Lord, I pray that I would preach it well, that I would preach it accurately. Keep me from error today. And I pray that you would implant this message deep into our hearts today, that we might hear and believe what you have to tell us today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take an art class or a shop class or any kind of class, really, usually what is being given to you is some sort of model for you to aspire to. For the artists, they might study the great masters of the past, Rembrandt, Michelangelo. And while we look at these things and we realize how much their skill makes ours pale in comparison with our little stick figures, the thing that these things are supposed to do is not to discourage, but to give you hope. A human being has managed to make a piece that looks like Rembrandt's. And while, let's be honest, you're probably not going to be Rembrandt one day, you'll be able to get a lot further closer to that than you are with your stick figure. It gives you something to hope for, something tangible to see. And for us here in Genesis chapter 2, we're being given a vision for what life was like. The perfect model for what the earth was like. 
and what humanity was like. As we'll see again as we go through the rest of chapter 2. Now, for us, we can look around and we see the world's not like this anymore. The world is not like an area where we have a garden of Eden around us, where we're being called to work without toil. We don't have that now. But what we do have is a hope. And as we read about that in Revelation 22, when all things will be made new again. Did you notice that the tree of life that we mentioned here in Genesis chapter 2 makes another appearance there in Revelation chapter 22? We're going back but going back better than Eden. We are going to a model where everything will be perfect again. And it gives us a hope for how we can construct our lives here and now. And that's what we're going to see as we jump into Genesis chapter 2. So I have three points on my outline, but we're just going to cover the first one, and that God cares for the earth And there's going to be a little bit of a hidden meaning in there as we'll see unfold. So pay attention. See if you can pick up what I'm doing here. So as we begin in Genesis chapter 2, while I don't think this is where our absolute focus should be, there's always a lot of confusion when you jump into Genesis chapter 2, especially having just done chapter 1. When we were looking at chapter 1, we saw six days of creation. We saw that the plants and the animals were created before human beings were. But yet, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, and you were to see there's been no bush in the field, there's no small plant, there's not been rain, and then we see the creation of man. And then man's put in the garden and all the trees and the grass pop up. What's going on? Did Moses fall asleep between Genesis 1 and chapter 2? Woke up, realized he had to quickly finish because his assignment was due and didn't look back and mess up the order? No, of course not. What's happening here is Genesis 2 is giving us a different focus. The best analogy I can come up for this is like the instant replay in sports. When you're watching a football game, you get to see the whole field. All the players are on the screen at once. They're moving from left to right, and hopefully your team is scoring. But when they do, usually what will happen is we'll switch to a different camera angle. Now, all of a sudden, the players are coming towards you. You're only seeing maybe two or three of them, and you're seeing the tail end of the play, not the whole thing. Because they want you to focus on the score. They want you to really cut out all other distractions. And this is what Moses is doing in chapter 2. He says, okay, you've seen the whole thing, right? God creates all things by himself, no other gods. Now we're going to focus on the apex of his creation. We're going to focus on man. Last time we saw God said, let us make man in our image. Boom, he made man. But now we're going to see there's actually quite an artistry here to making a human being. That God has actually put a lot of work into this part of his creation. So we're going to focus on that. But then we say, it's like, okay, well then, why is things are in a different order? Well, we can also look at it in saying the words that we're using here for bush and field refer to different things than what we saw in the earlier part of Genesis. What it's actually doing is one of my old professors says, these plants that you're referring to, We'll see them again after Genesis 3. The plants that are popping up here are the ones Adam's going to have to work for. But we'll see that again later. You'll also notice when the beginning in Genesis 1, God would say he'd create something and then he would say what? Go forth and multiply. Fill the earth. Which implies the whole earth wasn't filled yet. So I think what Genesis 2 is doing is we're focusing on the area that's going to become the Garden of Eden. 
This part isn't filled yet. No plants have shown up in this part of the planet. But now this is what God's going to work on. And we'll see how this goes. So with all of that aside, as we look here in Genesis 2, we're going to start as we're seeing what is Genesis's focus as we go along. So we're setting up. We have a field. It needs something. We need people to get this land to produce the way that God wants them to. So he's going to begin, and he's going to start with man. There in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The word formed here, according to commentators, is the same sort of word that you would use for a potter forming some clay or a carpenter forming a piece of wood into a sculpture. There is an artistry that's happening here. You can almost see God's fingers on the potter's wheel making this person. It's very involved that he's doing. is isn't just speaking and it happens like the rest of creation, but he's forming this human being. And he goes on to describe what he's making this person out of. Now, this isn't because God needs clay like we would if we were wanting to make a plate. We would need to go out and get some clay and put it down. God doesn't need that. He's already demonstrated quite clearly in Genesis chapter 1. He only needs to speak things and they exist. But here what he's doing is he's making a statement about us. This is something that the Bible picks up on. All through the rest, talking about being made of the dust of the ground. We'll talk about we are being formed from dust, and one day we will go back to dust. In fact, even the Hebrew is making a pun here. When we come up with the word Adam, it sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for ground. Adamah is making this point and tying us very closely to us being the dust and the dirt of the ground. One commentator put it this way, the wordplay shows the man's close connection to the ground, his cradle, his home, his grave. That's dirt and dust, you and I. It keeps us humble, doesn't it? But yet, there's a tremendous dignity here because that's not all that God forms human beings out of. It's not just dust that is somehow formed itself into a human being. He's formed it and then has breathed his own life into it. The breath of life. And this is something that has been particular to human beings. When we talk about him being alive, this word that is being used here, according to one of my old professors, does not, it is never used for an animal. This is a special type of life that is only breathed into human beings and gives us a tremendous dignity. Not deity, as one commentator put it, but dignity. We are dust that the Lord has formed into a living person. It's hard to move on from that very quickly, isn't it? Because there's a tremendous humility there So now, if someone ever calls you a dirtbag, you can look at them and say, how theologically precise of you. (laughs) Exactly right. But not complete. But not complete. Here, he has breathed into you life. The Hebrew there is being made a living being or a living soul. The word for this in Hebrew is nephesh. 
And in the Hebrew understanding, you are not a body with a soul that's been inserted inside like a hand with a glove. But instead, the soul and the body are intimately interwoven together like a blanket. Not able to see where one starts and the other ends. You are a whole and a complete person stamped with the image of God. This is what a human being is. And it says a lot about the creator, isn't it? Last night, I was showing Abby, the worker of a potter, and he takes this lump of clay and in less than two minutes made a pot with a lid that fit on his first attempt. Well, probably his thousandth attempt, but still, this was something that he was able to make. And it said something about the potter. That you were able to take this lump of clay, which the only thing I'm able to do with the clay in my house is stain my clothes. But he makes this beautiful pot, and it says something about him. And this says something quite a bit about God as well. He takes dirt and creates a human being. We're not just some animal that roves around. We have emotions, thoughts, morals. This creature can create a painting and perform a surgery. What does that say about the creator? Should we not be in awe of our creator when we look at each other? This is an amazing thing. He makes us from dirt and then gives us life. And how unstingy of God to breathe life into each one of us. You know, there are 8.1 billion forms of us right now. It's an incredibly generous God. Breathing life into dust people. Now, why am I beating this concept into the ground of us being dust? Well, one, because the Bible does. So our emphases should be, the Bible's emphases should be our emphases. But again, what this helps to set up for us is when we are going to get later into this book, that God makes promises to the dust people. That he binds himself to. That's something that we need to think about. And also that we understand what our position is. When we feel like our life hasn't gone the way that it is supposed to, how dare us stand up and say, you know what, you should have done this a little differently. In fact, Paul picks up on that, doesn't he? Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Paul's been going through a a series of arguments about, well, if God is going to choose some for salvation and not others, doesn't that make God unfair? And Paul could have answered in a number of ways, but instead what he did is, but who are you? Oh, man, to answer back to God. Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This helps remind us as to who we are and who God is. It's this reminder, we are dust that he has brought to life. That's the one thing we take away from this. We remind ourselves who we are and who God is. But number two is we remember that we don't have any leverage over God just for existing. Let me explain what I mean by that. 
There is this wonderful book. I read it in preparation for the, for the series of messages, but highly commend it to you. It's called Thinking Through Creation by Christopher Watkin. If you're interested, I'll leave a link in the blog when I post this later today. It's a wonderful book. You need to buy it. You need to read it. But one of the things that he does is he looks at all of our life through these two chapters of Genesis. And one of the things that he picks up on, particularly in this section, is how all the rest of the world's religions tend to relate to their God. They look at it in terms of how he draws it as imagine a lowercase n, starting from the bottom, going up to the top, and then back down. And the idea is, okay, we're over here. We offer something up to God. We make him happy. We please him in some way. So he'll do, as Christopher Watkin calls it, mutual back scratching and gives us something on the other side of it. That's how every religion, except Christianity, works. Gods need something. You can provide it. You do it right. He'll be happy with you and give you something in return. Do you notice how involved Adam was in this process of being formed? He had nothing. He was dust in the ground that God picked up and formed into what he is. Adam contributed nothing to his life. Once he was all formed and he was a body, did he contribute anything? No. God breathes into him life and maintains that life, by the way, as he does for all of us. Adam has no leverage over God at all. He doesn't need anything from this person. As we actually see in the rest of Scripture that we could point to, for example, and you can actually turn here with me, we've got some time, to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, be right in the middle of the book, roughly. Psalm 50, verses 7 through 13. I'll start there. It says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Now for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You hear what God is saying here? I don't need the bulls. That's not the point. The point is to remind you how much you need me. So call to me, and I will answer in the day of trouble. In fact, we see this again, lest we think this is just some sort of Old Testament concept, and by the time we get to the New Testament, God is softened in his old age, but that's not true. In Acts chapter 17, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read two verses. Acts 17, 24 and 25, Paul is saying, The God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by a man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's our position. So instead of an N-based relationship, starts with us, goes to God, comes back down like a vending machine. Instead, as Watkins imagines it, it's a U-shaped relationship. Starts with God, blessing to you, and all you can offer up is your thanks. That's the relationship that we have with God. And we can fall into this trap so much more easily than we think. We can say, well, I don't think of God as my vending machine. I don't imagine God that he really needs me. But this is buried a lot deeper in our hearts than we'd like to admit. Have you ever thought to yourself when something doesn't go your way, you think to yourself, wait a minute, I've been praying, I've been reading my Bible, I've been going to church, why is this happening to me? Haven't I been doing what God wants? Shouldn't I get something back? It's very easy to think this way. And that's probably because we forgot where we've come from. We forgot our dusty origins with God. And there's more to us than that. God has been gracious to us not just because he has provided life to the dirt people. But as we'll see as we go on in Genesis, the dirt people didn't do what God told them to do. Instead, when we get into chapter 3, where the only part, as one preacher said, where the only part of creation to which when God said, go and do, we said no. Stars obey. Every blade of grass grows exactly in every direction he wants us to. We're the only ones that say no. Now, he works through that. Don't get me wrong, and we'll see that as we go through. We're not bucking his plan. But we are disobedient to him. Have you ever bought something that doesn't work the way it's supposed to? Ever had a tool that was promised to work in one way and then didn't? I have. Maybe if you're extremely patient, you'll give it a couple hours and see if you can figure out how to work with it. But particularly if it's something that was cheap and inexpensive, you toss it to the side. If it's not working for you, you'll find something that will. It didn't cost God anything to make us. God doesn't have a lot invested. Yet we've rebelled. And furthermore, as we'll see in Genesis chapter 3, we then stain all the rest of his creation. Can you imagine buying a cheap pen that didn't write on on the paper but sprayed all over your nice clothes? Probably instead of just throwing the pen away, you'd probably snap it first, wouldn't you? Take out some anger on this thing for having sullied what you find valuable. That's exactly what we did. That's what we do. It's not just Adam and Eve. We continue to do this. He tells us to do these things and we do the exact opposite. Even to our pain. 
Because we believe a lie. God would have been very justified in throwing us out. Sweeping us away with the sawdust. Taking back that breath of life and not letting it be sullied by the dirt people. But instead, God becomes one of the dirt people. He takes on humanity. Instead of just breathing his life into human beings, he wraps his divine nature in one. And lives as one of us. And not only that, in a low estate as well. Jesus didn't come in the 21st century with air conditioning. He wasn't even born in a palace at the time. A little backwater small town of 400 people. That even the people of Israel thought was backwoods. Have you ever had to take a step down in your life? Finances become tougher and you have to start shopping in the places you never thought you'd have to. Or something happens in your marriage and now all you can think about is how it used to be. You take a step down. Imagine the step down for God to come and live as one of us for 33 years dealing with the limits of the dirt people. Leaving a throne where all the powers of all the heavens sang to him for all of eternity. Now he's living in Nazareth, taking out the trash. But it didn't stop there even. Wasn't enough that he had to become the dirt people. He also had to die as one. Taking on the penalty for sin. The things that we do deserve death. And he took it for us on the cross. As if it wasn't bad enough to die, he also had to die as a criminal. In the most painful, humiliating way possible. To redeem the dirt people. You and me. That's the kind of God we have. To be born of the dirt, die of the dirt, and then be buried in the dirt. But he didn't stay there, did he? He burst forth from the dirt, promising us life everlasting. And that if you and I will put our faith in him, turning from our sins and to him as Lord, that he will one day rescue us from the dirt. And you know what's incredible? Jesus kept the dirt. We tend to think that when he ascended up into heaven, he like unzipped the body. I was like, ah, finally free of that thing. He has remained that way. He understands what it's like. He still has his hands as he prays for our hands. He still has a heart that beats inside of him, a glorified one, but one that beats inside. That's the kind of God we worship. That's who's praying for you. One who would wrap himself up in the dirt and stay in it. And that's why we're able to when we look in 1 Corinthians 15. You often hear this one read in funerals. Or I read this one in funerals a lot because this is something that impacts us deeply. 
But it's because of what Jesus has done. Now Paul is able to say this. Start in verse 42. 1 Corinthians 15. Here Paul's talking about resurrection from the dead. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you hear what he's saying here? When Jesus rose from the dead, he was raised not just with a perishable body that will die again. He was raised with an imperishable body. That's what he'll do for us. You see the ark here? He's formed us out of dust. Something lowly. Something we'd rather not have on our bookshelves. But instead of saying, okay, well, you guys have lived in the dirt long enough. We're going to free you from that. Now you can be ethereal spirits for all the rest of your life. No, what he created was good. He's going to maintain it. But he's going to renew it. He's going to recreate it. So it lives in paradise. The new Eden. Forever and ever. Sown perishable. One day we'll die. But raised imperishable. Never to die again. But only if you're in Christ. So if you're not in Christ today. I would tell you now is the time. Your soul and your body. Need it. You need to surrender to Christ. You need to put your faith in him. Not by seeing how many good works you can do. Remember, we've already talked about that. God doesn't need your works. He needs your need. That's all you've got. So offer it to him. And say, help me. And he will transform you. And make you new. So what do we draw from all of this? What's our takeaway point? The takeaway point is that you and I are made of the dust. To dust we shall return. And we serve a God who cares for dust, who cares for the earth. And so we should care for each other. To quote one last time here from this book, Watkins asks the question of what, in light of all of this, how should we treat each other? Even if we take this U-shaped approach with God, God is gracious to us and we are thankful to him. We tend to have an N-shaped relationship with each other. And say, oh, well, I'm not going to put out for that person. I'm not going to be gracious to that person until this person gives me something. But here in Genesis, we're shown what our God is like. Who is infinitely gracious. Who gives to people without any promise of return. That should be the same for us. We're all dust. 
God owes us nothing. And that's how we should approach each other. When we do something for each other, we don't say, it's like, well, I've got this edge on you now. No, that's not how it works. Give graciously. Imagine how taking that sort of relationship that God has given to you, imagine if you gave that sort of relationship to your work, to your spouse, to your friends, to your children, to your parents. No more, you do this, I'll do that. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But it's saying, I've been made from the dust. The Lord has given me everything that I don't deserve. So in thankful offering to a God like that, I will give of myself to my fellow dirt people and be gracious to them as he has been gracious to me. And that's just the first five verses of Genesis 2. There's more. So come back and hear next time. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for just this little portion of Genesis chapter 2 and what it can have to tell us today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be reminded of how gracious you are to us. That we don't deserve your favor. That people don't owe us anything. Help us to take that approach. Help us to be in awe of you when we look at each other. We all should be pointing to each other, pointing to you, not just because of how we're made, but because of how you have remade us. Help us point to you, not just with the constitution of our bodies, but with the character of our souls that you've remade. And help us to lift up our voices in praise to you. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.